And let's move over into the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 10, where we were in our scripture reading, and look at this familiar passage, familiar story. I love archaeology and history. I love reading about ancient people and how they lived and how they specifically fit into Bible events and what's going on the same time and connecting them with my Bible history and Bible knowledge and uh, I love museums a highlight of my trips over the years have been able to visit some of the famous museums Uh, the museum in Berlin uh, the British Museum the Louvre in Paris Chicago History Museum even the Smithsonian's in Washington DC and the Yad Vashem Museum in Jerusalem One year, my dad and I went to visit together in Chicago, the Chicago History Museum, an exhibit that was traveling around the United States, the exhibit of King Tutankhamun, King Tut. The discovery of the tomb of King Tut is one of the most famous and greatest archaeological discoveries in modern times. Uh, in fact, it was the most important discovery in the, of the ancient world until the 1940s, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1922, British archaeologists Dr. Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon were digging in the Valley of the Kings when Carter peeked through a hole that was created into a sacred tomb. They asked him, what do you see? And his famous words as he's peeking through that hole, I see wonderful things. I was able to see some of those wonderful things on that traveling exhibit, such as the royal chair of King Tut, his mask, his animals that had been mummified and put into coffins with him, Many other things that were laid out. I say all of this because I want to draw your attention to the fact that every, and I mean every civilization, from the Greeks, Sumerians, Egyptians, Africans, Chinese, the Native Americans, the Mayans, Aztecs, the Amazonians, the Celts, the Romans, the Vikings, the Babylonians, and the list can go on. Every people group and every culture in the past held to a belief of the afterlife. King Tut filled his tomb with riches and even carved a small hole through his pyramid so that his soul in the afterlife could travel out of the tomb. They even had a boat, a ceremonial boat, full size that was set in his tomb so that he could travel in the afterlife on his boat. All his life was prepared for the life that was to come. All of these cultures around the world believed in afterlife, eternal life. It's the prevailing thought of all peoples. It actually is only in very recent times that modern man seems to populate the idea that there is no afterlife. Very few people actually believe That there is nothing after death. But deep down in every person. The question of life after death. Is always looming. What about eternal life? They even the conquistadors in the new world. Spent their whole time. Traveling looking for. Eternal life. The Jews believed in the afterlife. They believed that there was life after death and eternal life. From Enoch to Abraham to David to Daniel to Jesus in the New Testament and the apostles. Much of their discussion and their belief was centered that once this life was over, there was eternal life. The question we are faced with today in this text that we read. As this man stands up and asks Jesus, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life is the most relevant question in the room today. It is as relevant today as it was in the first century. We've all wondered about eternal life. I remember when I was five years old, I was laying on my bed one evening after a splinter had lodged deep into my metacarpus hand. I was completely afraid. I was afraid of the splinters. I was afraid of pain. I'm afraid of needles. I was afraid of tweezers. And I was afraid of my mom with both. <laughs> so I had hidden this very serious condition from my parents. And I was laying in bed. And the fear of death began to creep over me. What would I where would I go if I were to die of this condition? And that little five-year-old mind, my heart was convicted that I knew I was a sinner. And I knew I would go to hell because of my sin. And with tears and completely afraid and convicted of my heart about eternal life, I got up out of my bed and shared my secret. But most important, I told them I needed to trust Christ as my Savior. And I remember nailing by my parents' bed their trust in Christ as my Savior because I was afraid about eternal life. This question that was asked. Even after my salvation, I have found myself at times thinking about life after death. Have you? Have you thought about that? Sometimes maybe God has put you in the hospital bed or in a doctor's office on your way home or in a situation where you've seen an accident, and all of a sudden, this life that you're living and in the present seems so small compared to eternity. And where would you be? And what would you, what would you be doing? And what if this life were to be over? I don't know anyone who doesn't know about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Even unsaved people who don't read the Bible know this story. Know this term of the Good Samaritan. Now, I don't know if we can get through the whole thing this morning because of the, where the direction of the Lord has led me on this, but I think we're familiar enough with the parable of the Good Samaritan to understand the overarching point of what Jesus is going to do with this man, and this lawyer, who's asked a question about eternal life. It's key here. I've given an outline, or I can give you an outline, the lawyer, the Savior, and the Good Samaritan. I want you to look, first of all, at the lawyer. Look down in your verse, in verse 25. The Scripture says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. Again, we come to this word that Luke likes to use. Behold. Look. This is a word that in the narrative is to draw attention, to watch what happens next. Now, wouldn't you know, all of a sudden, while Jesus is preaching and teaching, a man stands up in the crowd and interrupts everyone and asks a question. What would it be like if I'm sitting here preaching this message and someone to stand up and interrupt and ask a question? It would shock everybody. It would change the normal. Well, that's what Luke, when he's writing this passage, says. A certain lawyer, all of a sudden, in the middle of Jesus' teaching, stands up and asks an all-important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke doesn't move as fast as the Gospel of Mark. But he does go through from one event to the next. Luke does put such movement of the Savior from one event to the next. And I've actually grown in my study, and I hope you have too, to love Luke and how he gives us the Gospels. In this section, down to chapter, was it 19 or so? There's some things that are unique to Luke himself. But Luke has a way of writing in his Gospel, pointing out the encounters that Jesus has with people. Those are important to Luke. People who are sick, people who are weeping, people who are hurting, people who are angry, people who are lonely, people who are outcasts, people who are leaders, people who are short, people who are women, people who are religious, and even lawyers. 
Was this man, question that I asked myself this week, was this man sent by a larger group of people to ask this question to tempt the Savior? Or was he there merely just to know the answer? Some believe that possibly he was sent by the Pharisees to catch Jesus and trap him. We know that they did do that. However, we don't know about this man, this, but this encounter that Jesus has with Luke is very important, and he's the only gospel writer to record this event and to record this story. So let's see the lawyer. The word lawyer here and the term that is used here is to describe a person who is the expert in the law. Don't think legal law. Don't think politician. Think religious. This was a religious lawyer. He was one who handled the word. A lawyer in theology. An expert in the Bible. He would, he would have been one who was kin to a scribe. But not just the scribe. He was more than a scribe. He didn't just write down the word. He spent his life saturated with the word. And answering questions from the word. In other words, if you had a question in the first century about the law, Moses' law, and God's word, you didn't go to a pastor. You didn't go to a missionary. You went to a, 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 a theological lawyer to answer your question. And you would ask it. Now you have to say, well, why is he the one asking the question then? If he's the one with all the answers. Well, as we read through, we'll notice a little bit of what's going on. This man is a very religious man. He has dedicated his life to knowing, reading, writing, and understanding the Bible. He has dedicated every aspect of his life to the written word. He's not ignorant. He's not uneducated. He is a very learned man. In fact, I'd like to draw your attention to something Jesus had just said before that may have connection to why he stands up. Look in the same chapter in chapter 10 and look back to verse 21. In that hour, Jesus began to rejoice in spirit. Now, that is the only time in the New Testament that the Bible says that Jesus rejoiced or had joy in spirit. Now, we know that Jesus was filled with joy. We know that Romans 12 says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. We know that Jesus had joy. But the only time in the gospel that says that Jesus was filled with rejoicing in his spirit is in this verse right here. And he's rejoicing over what he has seen from his disciples. He's just told them that they can rejoice, not that the spirits and the demons are run away from them, but the fact that their names are written in the book in heaven. That's worth rejoicing over. And then he says with a thanksgiving, this is a prayer to God. This is a conversation that God the Son is having with God the Father. And here's what he says. I thank thee, or I praise thee, O Father. Notice the Trinity in this verse. God the Son, God the Spirit, who he is rejoicing in, and now God the Father, who is Lord of heaven and Lord of earth. You're sovereign over all. You have hid these Things from the wise and the prudent. The word prudent means the intellectual, the intelligent, the educated, the smart ones in the group. One author that I read this week translated this word as smarty pants. <laughs> I like that. God, he says, I thank you, O Father, in heaven and in earth, that you have hid this. From the smarty pants of the world. And you have. Look at the rest of the verse. And you have revealed them unto babes. Infants. Even so father. For so it seemed good in your sight. A pleasure to you to do this. You say hold on a second. What is that conversation? Well, We didn't get to that in the last sermon that we had on this text. Because like normal we ran out of time. All right. But I want you to understand this because I believe this is connected to the next story. What Jesus is saying here is he is saying that God has revealed this. What is this? The fact that there are names written 
in heaven. The fact that there is power that is given to those who in simple faith will trust and believe the gospel and their lives will be changed compared to the ones who close their minds and reject Jesus like the ones in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. That's the previous verses. But God has revealed it unto those who are simple. Babies. Infants. Not, not, don't think of little babes. Think of those who just in childlike faith come to trust. In other words, what Jesus is saying, those who are wise and intelligent and smarty pants see the simple gospel of accepting Jesus Christ and the peace that this Messiah brings as foolishness. That's what Paul says. These know-it-all, these self-righteous people see trusting a Messiah from Nazareth who's going to give himself and die on a cross as foolish. Because there's got to be something I do to inherit eternal life. Just like Jesus was telling the rich man that it is hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. Not that rich people don't enter the kingdom of God. It is hard. Why is it hard? Because it, they hold on to their riches. They have another God. Jesus is saying in this passage, it's hard for the intelligent, the educated, the religious, the smarty pants, know-it-alls of the world to accept the simple gospel by faith. It's hard. Because they don't think they need a Savior. They think they're good enough. And God has, Jesus is saying, Lord, you've hid it from them because they're blind. They don't understand. And Jesus came to sinners, to those who are sick, not to those who are whole, who don't need a physician. And so Jesus is praying and giving thanks to God for people, I want to say it, like me and like you, who just simply say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I can't save myself. And I believe that this Jesus of Nazareth who came and humbled himself. And it's not through religion. It's not through books. It's not through doing a bunch of good deeds that's going to get me salvation. It's through simple childlike faith to trust the simple plan of salvation. The gospel message of Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, the very next story, we have a smarty pants who stands up and says... What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, interesting, at this point, the scripture says here, if you look down in verse 25, he said this to tempt Jesus or to test him. It's the same word that Luke uses in Luke 4 in verse 12, when the devil came to tempt Jesus, test him. This man is testing Jesus. He wants to know if Jesus really has the answer to this all-important question. And maybe I point out that humble people, simple people, children, infants, babes come to Jesus to simply believe in him. But educated people, religious people who think they're all it and they have all the answers. When they come to Jesus, they come to tempt him and to test him. Not because they're actually looking to accept him, but because they're looking to trap him. Now, can I ask you this morning, just in an application, how do you come to Jesus? Do you come to Jesus with all your problems already fixed? Just to see if you can trap him and get him to do and to say what you think you should say and do? Or do you come to him in childlike faith saying, Lord, here I am. So, as this man who comes and asks this question of the Savior, he addresses him as master or teacher. This is a term of respect. I want you to just see this. This lawyer would have been addressed in this fashion when people came to ask him questions. He was the expert. So when he would come sit at his desk and people would come in with their Bibles and their scrolls and open up and say, Master and teacher, I have a question about the law. You who are such an expert and, and so knowledgeable about the word, would you answer this question for us? And notice this man comes to Jesus the same way. He sees himself as... As an equal to Jesus. I'm an expert of the law. And Jesus you're an expert of the law. Let's enter into a dialogue. Let's talk about this. 
he asked this question. One person stated that the issue of this question is not about the verb to be, but is about the personal pronoun I. What must I do? You see, this man who is all knowledgeable, who has all the questions answered in his mind even before he asks it, is all about I, I, I. And the biggest obstacle in the way for eternal life for most people is I. I can do this myself. This last week, we, we had a time where we, with our family, uh, had, a, had a little um, fire pit out back. And we set the tent up one, one night this week, Thursday or Friday. I remember when it was a nice evening and we had the kids and we were going to have a camp out in the backyard, all right? And so we just kind of camped out, and we got a little fire pit in, in the yard, and we were going to make some s'mores. And so I got the little, you know, all the makings for s'mores and got the little tongs and the sticks, and, and my kids were so excited and jumping up and down, and, uh, you know, that we had to wait until it got dark so that you can get in the right mood, okay? So you can't do s'mores in the daytime. So you got to wait, but they're sitting there waiting just as patiently, asking every 30 seconds, and just watching the sun go down, and as soon as it went dark, and we had the fire on, and then it was time, time for the s'mores. And Jed, my five-year-old, decides that he, he wants to do it like, like all the others. He wants to do it by himself. And I've seen this happen before. He puts his, you know, marshmallows on the end of the stick and goes in, <laughs> sticks it right in the fire. You know, and the whole thing just, <laughs> you know, it comes in an inferno. And then he pulls it back out and says, oh, no, oh, no. You know, he's waking it around like, you know, trying to get it out. And he doesn't want to get close enough to blow it out. And that burns to a crisp. And then he comes over and, of course, he's dropping it all over the place and sticking it on his sisters and everywhere else. And I'm saying, all right, grab a hold of this. And I said, Jed, you don't do it like that. You don't know how to do it. And he's just going, oh, no, I don't like it. I said, but you put it in there. You're not supposed to. And then I get in this argument with a five-year-old. And I just take it and say, all right, let me, let me do this for you. But the whole point of the, of the experience was that he wanted to do it himself. But he couldn't. And this experience of what this man is thinking about eternal life, this most important question, and yet he's at the center of the question, not Jesus. He is. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And let's look at the Savior in verse 26. Jesus said unto him, what is written in the law and how do you read it? Two questions he asks. Jesus responds with a question. He sends the man right back to the very scriptures that he knew. Jesus would often answer questions with questions. Because Jesus was not interested in simply answering necessarily the question, but causing the people and, and using it as an opportunity for a teachable moment to cause them to answer the question for themselves. You find out. Let me guide you to truth. Instead of just simply answering the question, Jesus would often do that. But Jesus is getting ready to shock this Jewish man's socks off. Jesus is the master and he knows all and he knows how to witness to this man. So let's watch Jesus, the two questions that he asked. First of all, what is written in the law? Jesus says, what does God say? Jesus points the man back to the already written word of God, the graphitai, which is used here. What is already settled and written. Same word that Jesus used in, in Luke chapter 4. When the devil came to him tempting him, he said, it is written. It is settled. It is already written down by God. In other words, Jesus is telling the man, the answer to your question is staring you in your face. It's been written down. God's already answered that question for you. Go back to the Bible and find it. 
Jesus doesn't give him anything new necessarily. He sends them back to the Bible. And this is witnessing 101. What do you do when you come to someone who doesn't know Jesus or you're trying to witness? What is the very first thing that you are to do? You are to use the tool of God's word in their life. I know that we can use our testimony. I know that there are gospel tracts. I know that there's a lot of material that we can use to help point people. I know there are words you can start with, the, you know, different things. And, and you go through a lot of different helps in evangelism. But don't ever forget the most simple and basic tool that God has used to convict the soul is faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Jesus turns this man back to, yes, Jesus was the word and he could have spoken and the word of God would have come out of his mouth. But he takes him back to what he already knew and he says, what has God written down for centuries in the past? To answer that question, what does it say? Notice he asks the second question here. He asks the man, what do you read? Now, he asks him here when he says, what does it say? That's the words that are written. And then he says, how do you read it? When he says, how do you read it? He says, how do you understand it? How do you apply what you have read to your life? Jesus is giving us an interesting aspect about the written word of God. It is written for all to read. That's, it is important for us to have the word of God in our own language. So that we can read the words of God. We had a missionary this last week who was part of our missions conference here last Sunday. Who's going to Uganda. And he's had a ministry specifically to take the word of God into the languages of the dialects of Uganda. So that he can translate the word of God. So people have the Bible in their own language. That's important. So that they can see what God says about eternal life. But there's another part to the written word. How do we understand it? This would be the area of interpretation. Listen, there are no secret messages in the Bible. The Bible is not written in code. But as we read the words that God has written... We must apply them to our life. We must understand them. How do we read them? Does it hit us in our hearts? An elementary question here, or at least thoughts of those of you who read your Bible on a daily basis. You do what we call your devotions. And I hope you do that. I hope you take your Bible every day, either in the morning or in your lunch break or in the evening, and you open the Scripture and you take a portion and you read it. Do that. Some people make a plan that they're going to read through the whole Bible in a year. That's good. You can do that. Maybe you read a proverb a day. Or you read an epistle. You read in the Old Testament. And you read in the New Testament. But as you read, ask yourself, as you read the words of God, what does this mean? And how do I apply this to my life? How do I understand this? Because when God has written his word, whether you're in a narrative or you're in poem or you're in the New Testament or you're in epistle or you're in the apocalypse of the book of Revelation, God wants to speak to you through his word about himself. Ask your question, what do I learn about God from these verses? And then ask yourself the next question, what do I learn about myself from these verses? What, what do I learn about man? What do I, how do I learn about how God interacts with man? Who God is, who man is, who I am. And how do I apply that in 2023? We want, this is our understanding. For instance, I know there are some here today that you know all about the gospel. You know about Jesus. You know about faith. You know that he died on the cross. You know that he rose again on the third day. You know a lot of the stories in the Bible. But some religion and some teaching has clouded your mind. And flat out you don't apply the gospel and the clear teaching of the Bible in your life. Because you think because of the religion. When you come to the passage of scripture. And you, believe, you, you hear about faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel. You automatically think that you have to accept Jesus plus 
to receive salvation. You think it is faith in your works or in your baptism or in something else. You know what the Bible says, but you don't understand it. And you misapply it. And you don't accept the simple gospel of Jesus Christ for what it says. You add religion upon it to add to it. And you misinterpret. And this is exactly what the man says. Notice what the man responds to Jesus' question in verse 27. And he answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. This man comes back to Jesus and he quotes two passages of Scripture. I wish we had time to go to those two passages, but you can write them down. This is Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Deuteronomy 6 is the first section. Thou shalt love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Leviticus 19 is thou shalt love thy neighbor as yourself. This expert in the law took back into the Old Testament law two verses, connected them together, and responded to Jesus with the all-important first and second great commandment. We know there was another time and occasion in the book of Matthew when when uh, another scribe, another religious person came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment of all the Bible seeking to test and tempt Jesus? And on a separate occasion, Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord. He quoted this passage. Then he quoted Leviticus 19 again. And love your neighbor as yourself. These two, the whole of the law rests upon. So this man answers exactly the way Jesus answered about the first and second great commandment. This is the great Shema passage. Hear, O Lord, our Lord is one. And thou shalt love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This was a passage that every Jew would have said twice every day of his life. It was a passage that was wrapped up in a little piece of paper or a little piece of scroll and put in a box at the doorpost of the entering in of their house. And every day he went in and out, he would touch He would touch that little box on the door. This was a passage that was rolled up in a little small scroll and put in a little box and put on the forehead and wrapped around and put on the forearms and wrapped around by the Orthodox Jew. You would find the Shema. This was a passage that they were very familiar with. Their whole life was wrapped around this text of Scripture. They had applied it in a way. This all-important verse had been made actually by Jesus' day into a simple cliche. A run-in and run-out set of words that added to their daily list. That they would mutter these words under their breath every time they went out the door. Every time they came back in. Every time they got up in the morning. Every time they went to bed at night. Every time they went to the temple for prayer. Every time an Orthodox Jew would say their regular prayers. They would have it on their forearm and their forehead. And they still, after 2,000 years, do it to this day. Over and over and over and over again. The problem is they took this verse and literally wrote it on the doors and hung it around their necks and wrapped it on their arms, but it never sank into their hearts. I want you to know in this passage it says, for all. This is not a rule to be followed. This is not a cliche to be on your wall to just touch and kiss and go out and continue and come back and kiss and go out and put it on your and just walk around and just say it and say it and say it and repetition over and over again. God didn't put that verse in there for that purpose. He put it in there because he wants a relationship with his people. He wants the words to sink down into their heart and he wants them to know everywhere you go, think about how much I love you and you should love me. Let it sink down into your heart in the application of your life. That's why Jesus said, how do you read it? How do you understand it? Because he knew the words, but he was going through the motions. He was a religious man. He did his cliche. He said his words. He muttered his prayers, 
but it was never truly in a relationship with God. The second passage in Leviticus 19 will go to a second question that he will ask, who is my neighbor, and Jesus will tell the story. But we're not going to get to that this morning. I want you to notice Jesus' response last in verse 28. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Now, I believe it's at this point that Jesus shocks the man just like it shocked me as I read that verse. Jesus says, you're absolutely right. You get an A plus on your open book test. And everyone congratulates the smarty pants in the room. He knows the answer to his question. Now, this bothers me. And can I just read it to you here just for the sake of time? I told you, oftentimes I come to passages of Scripture, especially maybe even more so regularly as I read the words of Jesus, that sometimes the things that Jesus say make me squirm and bother me. And I have to wrestle with it. Jesus gives an answer that I would not have given. The man just asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I would have taken him to John 3.16. I would have taken him to Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 10, 9 through 13, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Titus 3.5, and many other verses. You say, well, those weren't written yet. Yeah, I know that, but Jesus knew them. I would have taken him, let's say, to Isaiah 53. Let's say Psalm 51. Let's say Genesis 3.15. All of those passages, I would have taken him to the sacrifice passages, such as Abraham and Isaac, when Abraham told Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb. I would have done what Philip did and taken him and explained unto him Jesus from the Old Testament. I would have told him that he needed to repent, confess of his sins, believe on Jesus. I would have given him the gospel of Jesus being the Savior of the world, suffering on the cross for his sins of the world. Look to Jesus and you'll live. He died and rose again for your sins and you need to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus and trust him to be your Lord and Savior. That's what I would have done. Is that not what you would have done? When someone asked you, how do you receive eternal life? Is that not the gospel that we would give in a typical evangelism and witnessing setting? My problem is Jesus doesn't give the classic answer. I thought the gospel was trusting Jesus, not doing the law. I thought Romans 3.20 was still in the Bible. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now listen, Jesus knew how to deal with this man's heart. Jesus knew what was holding this man back. Jesus doesn't answer in the classic response, and it shocks me just like it shocked the man. I believe the man was thinking, I've got Jesus. He's going to have to choose between the sacrifices and himself. He's going to say like he did to the man in Capernaum, I can forgive your sins, and then I'll have Jesus trapped. And Jesus doesn't answer like that. He says, you answered correctly. Go and do. And what Jesus does, and this is key to what is going to happen in the next story. This will help you to understand the parable of the good Samaritan. Jesus is going to show in front of all of these people that this man is a smarty pants. And thinks that he's okay. And if anyone is going to get to heaven, it will be him. And Jesus bursts his bubble. Jesus is going to show this man that he cannot fulfill the simple law that he just quoted. Jesus is going to show this man that he cannot complete the demands of a perfect law of God. It is impossible. You cannot love God the way God demands. You cannot love your neighbor the way God demands. You cannot meet the demands of the law because you're a sinner. You see, the whole problem is this man doesn't think he's a sinner. He thinks that he can do something to inherit eternal life. He's got all the answers. 
Shepard said this in his commentary, Jesus treated the answer as sincere. The trouble with this plan of attaining eternal life is, no, is that no man ever lived up to its requirements. No man was ever able to live a balanced, blameless life before the law. Just one small slip and you're completely guilty. You see, this man is looking for something that he can do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus is going to show him he cannot do it. God expects perfection. The Shema said, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Folks, that means all. All means all. And this man thinks that he has everyone fooled because he's an expert. But Jesus knows his heart. Jesus knows that there's no possible way this filthy sinner can meet up to the perfect law of God. And he hits this man right in his pride. What Jesus does with the story of the Good Samaritan is he hits this man right to the core of his problem and it will hurt. And Jesus is showing this religious man that he is not as innocent as he thinks he is. This man knew the words... But he didn't admit that he was guilty under its condemnation. This man thought highly of himself. He was in love with himself. And Jesus shows him that he was just as guilty as the next person. Of all the acts of kindness from the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus' main point is not that a person can do enough good to inherit eternal life or earn some kind of grace points. This is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus doesn't say this story because he says, if you'll go out and you'll help hurting people and you'll help the one who's been mugged and you'll pay for their hotel bill, then you'll earn grace points so that you can have eternal life. The story is about one, the one person you least expect to show mercy and compassion and kindness of love is the one who humbled himself, an outcast, a nobody, a Samaritan. And yet, he shows his faith as he acts in love. The smarty pants in the story, the Levi and the priest, Prove they are too self-righteous and too intelligent to stoop down and show love. Proving they are not worthy of the kingdom of God. Which shows that Jesus said the high-minded are too in love with themselves. Jesus takes this man and he shows him his sin. He takes the law of God, puts it in a story form and holds it up like a mirror in front of the man's face and he walks away completely condemned. And this proves the fact that why he turned around and said, who is my neighbor? He said it to justify himself. To try and show that he was okay. Giving an excuse. Which means... That Jesus hit him right where it counted. Let me ask you today. How do you think of yourself? What do you do with this passage? If you're a religious person today thinking that you can do something for eternal life. Then you are completely wrong. You cannot do anything. Your efforts will always come short of God's glory. But Jesus did it for you. If you're a believer today, you look at the story and you fall in, uh, and place yourself in the story. How do you evidence your faith? How do you show that you are humbled and in simple childlike faith have trusted Jesus? And that is to come out in your life as an evidence of your faith in your kindness and your compassion. With a high-minded, haughty spirit, with a... Or, or with a humble attitude and a spirit of compassion. That's the contrast in the story. The Levi and the priest stick their nose up in the air and don't even get close. Proving that they don't have a relationship with God. But those who have a relationship with God that by faith have accepted the message of God. Will not think twice about bending the knee and helping someone in need. This story and this dialogue hits us in our pride. I like what Pentecost says. 
He points out at the end of his portion of this passage that Jesus could be using this story to point to himself. That the priest and the Levi are the religious smarty pants of the world who think that they can inherit their own eternal life. The sinner is the one who has been stripped naked and left on the road in Jericho, helpless, needing a savior. And the Samaritan is the one who left his heaven and came to this world, gave his all, took his coat off of his back and put it on him and became the savior of the world. What a picture of the grace of God in this story of the Good Samaritan. Where do you find yourself? Father, I pray as we close today. Lord, this interaction with this man who thinks he has all the answers, and even in answering the question of the law, of this issue of love, draws us to the written word of God, and that it is the word that is our schoolmaster. That shows us that we are condemned because we cannot meet up to its expectations. We cannot meet up to the demand of a perfect God and a perfect law. Lord, we all have to admit that we've not loved you like we should. We all have to admit that we don't love our neighbor as we should. And because of that, we stand condemned under the law. But the law points us to Jesus Christ who has met the perfect demands. And in his righteousness, if we will humble ourselves and accept the message of Jesus Christ that he is the savior for both the poor, the uneducated, and the wealthy, and the educated. It's the same answer. Bend the knee at the foot of the savior. And if there is someone here today who in their religion still believes that they can do something to inherit eternal life, would they see themselves in this story and see they cannot do anything because Jesus has done it for them and they need to just like a child in faith accept Christ as their Savior. Those of us who know Jesus as our Savior today does our pride still get in, our way, in the way in how we look down on others instead of showing compassion and mercy and love like this Samaritan did, evidencing in his life the faith that he had, willing to do the hard thing, to put himself on the line, to give of his possessions, to sacrifice his journey for the sake of someone else he didn't even know. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see this story of the Good Samaritan, maybe in a different light, to hit us right where we need to be hit in our pride. And we would see the Savior. With heads bowed and eyes closed before we end the service today, there will be a song of invitation in just a moment that they will play. But if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, would you trust him and him alone? It's not baptism. It's not Jesus plus. You know what the Bible says. But you misinterpret it. You misunderstand it. Because of the weight of good works that have been added. Because of maybe something you were taught. Or some church or tradition. And that is holding millions upon millions of people. From accepting Jesus Christ. Because they think they're not sinners. And they can do something to inherit it. And as a believer today. If God has convicted you this morning. About your pride. Would you show kindness and mercy. To those around you. Not to receive grace. But because you have received grace. And you have seen you have been humbled, and so you will continue to humble yourself in helping others. Would you stand to your feet with heads bowed and eyes closed as Stephanie plays? If you need to deal with the Lord, confess your sins. If you need to trust Christ as your Savior, if you want to come to the front, I'd be glad to talk to you. We could have a staff, a deacon, 
a man to pray with a man, a lady to pray with a lady. We don't want you to leave this morning confused. We don't want you to leave this morning without the question answered about eternal life. And if you've asked that this morning, we, this is, that's the looming question in the room. Do you have everlasting life? You only receive it through Jesus Christ. As she plays, just in the moments that we have before we close service, go to the Lord, open your heart, let the Word of God reveal who you are. Father, thank you for the time in your word. I thank you that um, the word of God so reveals our heart. And so many times we try and justify ourselves. And when we come before the word of God, we come completely humbled. Uh, Lord, um, burst our bubble of pride and self-righteousness. And help us to see the Savior. And help us to continue to be humbled before the cross. And show that love and compassion that we heard about so much this week already. Same word that's used here in this story. The one who showed compassion, mercy. And would we go out this week showing that love that we have received that we should display for others around us. This is how all men will know that we are your disciples. That we love one another. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.